1: Welcome to this September 1st edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut, glad to have you with us. As we move into a brand new month and Election Day gets closer and closer. Um, We're going to take a break from talking about the issues on the campaign trail uh, today, take a break from the investigations into uh, Donald Trump and his allies uh, in their efforts to overturn the election here in Georgia, and all the other uh, many political topics that we take on day in and day out, because school, as you all know, is back in session across the state of Georgia. And there's a lot to talk about in terms of what's happening in classrooms across the state um, for a variety of reasons. Um, One of them is, um, just this morning, national test results uh, from across the country, that is, Um, were released and showed in very stark terms that the pandemic has had a devastating effect on American school children. Uh, The the results released today focused specifically on nine-year-olds in math and reading um, and showed that scores had not been as low as they were in 2022 for more than two decades. And the way the National Assessment of Education Progress organization uh, frames that as to say we've lost a generation or more of learning when it comes to math and um, uh, uh, reading, and 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 there's drops in Georgia uh, as well, not just among nine-year-olds, but in in uh, ages across the board from K uh, through twelve, and we want to talk a little bit about what that means, but. What we're gonna focus on at least as a starting point is the fact that while all that is happening, our legislature this past session focused more on social hot button issues. Issues like whether or not uh, teaching of race has to be limited in some way to avoid uh, making students, uh, white students particularly uncomfortable about what they were learning. Um, issues like how much involvement parents should have in overseeing what teachers are teaching in the classroom, what books should be allowed in school libraries, Um, none of which really I think you can fairly say addresses the top issue, which there is a shortage of teachers and basic learning is more at risk today than it's been for uh, quite some time. So we're going to talk about all that more with a Terrific panel starting with my Thursday partner on the show, the editor of the AJC, the boss himself, Kevin Riley. Hi, Kevin. It's
2: good to be uh, with you, Bill. And we are certainly taking on maybe the toughest topic in our society where tax dollars and politics and our families and the values of our homes all meet because it's about education. So, really looking forward to the chance to talk with the folks who are with us today.
1: Donna Lowry uh, is back with us. Of course, Donna Lowry is the host of Lawmakers at GPB, but Donna Lowry had a long and very distinguished career as the education reporter at Atlanta's uh, WXIA-TV, 11 Alive. And so uh, this is a particularly good show for you to do, Donna. Thanks for being with us.
0: Yeah, always happy to talk about education. And yes, as Kevin said, it is a big part of our lives, and not only that. When we're down at the legislature, it and we talk about the budget. It's a third. It's a, the biggest portion of the budget. You know, so it, this is an important topic. So glad to be here.
1: Nicole Carr is with us. She's a reporter at ProPublica uh, who focuses on uh, issues of racial justice, uh, criminal justice, and has written quite extensively about education as well and nicole we should also point out you're a veteran of wsb tv newsroom a uh, place where i used to hang out for about 20 years thanks for being here
3: <laughs> thanks for having me yeah i'm really interested in this topic and particularly the impact that it's having on the people trying to do their job uh so yeah. we're talking teacher uh, shortages <laughs> there's a lot that goes into that
1: so, thanks Ta- for Oh, absolutely. Ty Tagami of the AJC, reporter for the AJC, who also does quite a bit of reporting on schools, is uh, with us as well today. Ty, I don't think you've been on with the boss himself. I hope you're not feeling intimidated by having Riley uh, uh, on the show with you.
4: Yeah, thanks for having me on. I uh, really appreciate it. And uh, now Kevin's a really nice guy. It's hard to feel uh, intimidated
1: by him, But uh, yeah,
4: I'm glad you're talking about education. It's such an important
1: issue. Um, all right, Donald, let, let me start, if I can, by, with a disclaimer. Um, as we all know, for a couple of years now, uh, there's been a lot of talk about critical race theory, uh, especially among Republicans uh, who have used it as a weapon, uh, saying that uh, we need to stop teaching it in, in schools because it makes uh, people feel uncomfortable as they learn about racial history and the like but let's be clear about something. Critical race theory is not really taught in Georgia schools. This is an academic theory taught at in, in higher education levels. And so when we say CRT, as many people do, what we're really talking about in practical terms are all of the legislator, legislative measures that kind of fall under that in terms of teaching divisive concepts, in terms of... Uh, talking about LGBT issues, about transgender issues. They've all sort of fallen under this umbrella of, a, of, a, of an academic theory that's not really what is at stake here.
0: Yeah, in terms of the academic theory, it's one thing. It was, you know, it's 40 years old, <clears throat> excuse me, academic, legal concept, taught in law, taught in law school, taught in college, not at the K-12 level. Social construct that really says that embedded in our legal system, in our institutions, is racism. You know, in housing, in criminal justice, and employment, and in healthcare. That not really focusing on um, on some of the things that we have heard so much about, and that is, you know, we'll get into it a little bit later. Exactly what the law says in Georgia with divisive concepts, but everything thrown has been thrown into it. In, including in the law that the legislature passed that um, dealing with transgender, transgenders, um, students in sports. So it has become this overall umbrella for so many things that have nothing to do with the original concept of CRT.
1: All right. So, Kevin, uh, because this is Political Rewind, obviously, we're going to weave into the show today conversations about how, uh, what we're going to discuss in terms of education is finding its way in the campaigns themselves. And so it's interesting as a starting point. On one hand, uh, Governor Kemp fulfilled a promise he made during his first campaign that teachers would end up with five $5,000 raises uh, if he became governor and during his administration. He fulfilled that promise with this last session. Uh, the budget includes those raises. Um So on one hand, there's reason to think that perhaps teachers are delighted that Kemp was able to do that, but on the other, he has signed into law a number of bills that are making it a little bit more difficult and possibly a lot more difficult for teachers to understand just what their guidelines are for what they can and cannot teach. And we're going to talk about those in specific detail, but the starting point is this sort of odd contrast between Here's your money. Oh, here are your obstacles.
2: Well, you're right, Bill. And another another big backdrop to all of this, right? Uh, and and what the governor spent a lot of time talking about was a, uh, a they call it a parental uh, bill of rights almost for students. And I know that that Ty covered this a lot, as did Donna and others. I and what it really comes down to is this idea that. Parents should have a big and greater say in exactly what their children are being taught in school, right? And, of course, I think that that, uh, in theory, is a very difficult thing to argue against, right, because um, parents are through their taxes or otherwise paying for their education of their kids, and they have a great interest in it, Um But I do think it introduces uh, this difficult thing of teachers being questioned about everything they did and how they did it. And it started with, uh, really came into force during the pandemic as remote teaching was a challenge and whether we should open schools was a challenge. And parents felt like they ought to, some parents felt that they ought to be able to decide that or teachers ought to be more responsive to them. So it's thrown teachers into this maelstrom where they've got all these different forces that they're trying to deal with besides just the the actual challenge of teaching kids in a classroom. Um, I
1: I want to talk about parental involvement and how the legislature has uh, given uh, more room for parents to get involved in their schools in in a few minutes. But if we can, if you don't mind, Nicole, I'd like to start by talking about divisive concepts. Because that's an issue that right now teachers are facing, especially in teaching of history, uh, social studies, um, and other subjects, they don't quite understand what that means. When we talk about you cannot teach divisive concepts that might make some students feel uncomfortable, what the heck are teachers supposed to make of that?
3: Uh, I think that's a question teachers are still asking as we start the school year, right? What what am I supposed to make of that? Um, I think one thing we have to remember is uh, that standards have always been in place, okay? So standards have not changed. Uh, ways to challenge uh, what is being taught have always been in place. Uh, and you have to excuse my little one who's back here uh, coughing as well (laughs)
5: Home with a
3: a little one now. Um, I can remember before writing my last piece, uh, contacting the state and asking had any formal complaints been filed about a particular concept that was being uh, protested at at school boards and no one had gone through that process. There are processes in in place to do these things. Um, Parents have always had quite a bit of control. And I think we need to start with what has been in place and what we're really asking of educators uh, today and, and what the purpose is.
1: So, uh, Ty, divisive concepts to you. Um, how might that, do you imagine, impact a teacher who has to teach about uh, slave life on a plantation uh, in, uh, in the uh, a period before uh, the Civil War? Um, bring it up into a more contemporary context and talk about another uh, 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 historical uh, 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 event that um, may make many people feel uncomfortable. Talk about the Holocaust and talk about Jews in the Holocaust. What exactly does it mean to teachers to not be able to teach history uh, without avoiding these uh, and having to avoid these so-called divisive concepts?
4: Um, well, you know, I really think it depends which teacher we're talking about and where they are. I think you're going to have very different reactions in a, you know, a place like DeKalb County or Atlanta, solidly blue areas. Um, and also in in rural areas where everybody knows each other, you know, you probably went to school with your teacher. I think you're going to have a different reaction, too. I think um, it's the teachers who are going to be walking on eggshells are the ones in like the fast growing exurban areas, um, where, you know, that are becoming more diverse and the politics are becoming more fraught. Um, I think those teachers are just, they're going to be concerned about just being misinterpreted and uh, saying the wrong thing. And they're going to probably stick as closely to the facts as they have to, because I mean, Nicole's right. They have to teach all of these things. All, there's, you know thousands of pages of standards that talk about um everything from the civil war you know all the way up to the civil rights and and beyond so um and I think it also gets a little more tenuous when you're talking about contemporary events like January sixth a lot of teachers were, were really cautious about how they approached that you know because it ha- hadn't been vetted but when you're talking about a curriculum, I think they're just gonna be f- following following the rules and- and by the way the it's it's not that they can't teach. The law actually uses the word advocate, and um, you can't basically advocate the, for the idea that everybody's racist, which, I mean, so far after probably a month uh, con- uh, continuous of, of all the testimony I heard of the hearings at the legislature, you know, probably put it together it's like a month, there was never one solid example of that being done in the state. So I'm still waiting for uh, someone to file a formal complaint.
1: Um, so, Donna, talk about it. You, you spent an awful lot of time in your career covering teachers themselves, uh, where teach, schools are understaffed. Teachers are dealing with other issues right now. They're dealing with discipline in the classroom. We know that students have come back after the pandemic a little more unruly and in some cases a lot more unruly uh, than they had been uh, in the past. Um, they, they're not as focused it's harder to get them to pay attention to class lessons um, how is all of this shaping what this school year is starting out to be like for parents students and teachers
0: you know from the teachers i've talked to there are a lot of them are walking on eggshells they're not sure what they can teach and how they can teach it when the, you know when they're going to talk about something where a discussion becomes something more, you know, they're they're having a discussion with students in social studies or history or English literature, and it becomes something that that a student may say they're advocating for something rather than just having discussions. That on top of the things you mentioned. The the fact that we've seen a rise in school violence. Some of our counties are really dealing with some real problems when it comes to that. Classroom disruption, kids who are not focused, absenteeism is still high. They're just not seeing the numbers of enrollment in the classroom that they've seen before. There's uh, cyberbullying. There's... the, the vacancies, right now we are seeing teacher uh, teacher shortages throughout the country. and And then you're at the college level, you're just not seeing students go into education the way they used to. You know, why would you want to deal with all of these pressures on a daily basis? And then you can have maybe each one of you have these large classrooms and maybe each one of the parents of your kids, have some kind of problem with the way you're teaching something. I can't imagine teaching about the civil rights movement and Rosa Parks and not being able to talk about the fact that the, these were this, a lot what she was doing came out of Jim Crow laws, which were laws actually instituted dealing with race in this country and not and not worrying about what somebody might say about that and whether you're advocating one way or another on a subject. It's tough.
1: Kevin,
2: you know, the other thing about this bill that I think uh, you just have to wonder about. So, most of what this is, you know, in terms of the standards and what has to be taught in school, uh, these are these these discussions around divisive issues really are related to social studies or history or civics, th- uh, those kind of topics. And as we know, um, at a time when our democracy seems to be most at risk. And, and there seems to be genuine you know, lack of understanding among many citizens about the traditions of American democracy. I mean, civics education has its roots in concerns about migrants coming to the country very early in our history who were coming from places where there wasn't a tradition of democracy. And that's really why civics education took a foothold. But you really wonder about the the shift toward like, hey, let's not spend too much time on these kind of topics, there's too much risk, at a time when these very topics and the topics of social studies and history and civics are crucial to our nation going forward.
1: All right, so let's dig into uh, some of the things we all kind of uh, referred to in a more general way. Um, Ty, uh, uh, Kevin already brought up the fact that uh, new legislation empowers parents in a perhaps a new way. I mean, parents have always been able to be involved in their children's education. We know that. But the new legislation uh, gives them uh, uh, more opportunities to uh, uh, be involved. Um, And and I'm wondering if you can help us understand where we're heading with that and what it means, certainly in terms of school uh, school libraries, where parents now have, have each, I think it's, am I right, Ty, each system has to set up its own plan for how a parent will challenge a book and what the process will be for removing a so-called obscene or inappropriate uh, book. That's what, why don't we start with uh, that and then talk about other ways in which parents have more power in their schools these days.
4: Yeah, yeah, Bill, um, you're talking about two different bills, uh, leg- uh, pieces of legislation yes. there that do two different things. I'll start. Let me start with the Bill yep. of Rights. Um, uh, uh, I did write about it, but not profusely um, because it it doesn't really change anything. Um, and matter of fact, a lot of the, uh, well, some of the conservative um, lobbyist parents who were there were pretty unhappy with it because it doesn't really change the game. It just, it just confirms rights that already existed in law for the most part. In fact, one of the school districts just adopted, it was House Bill 1178, so adopted their wow. new policies as required. And. I, I looked at it and it looked almost word for word like the old policy. So I'm not sure that that changes the game for anybody. Um, the 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 book bill, uh, though, it does, it does, it could have an impact. It um, streamlines the process for removing books from libraries. Um, in the past or, you know, for decades, the norm was to have these big um, committees that would be, you know, librarians and an administrator or two and teachers and parents and, and and in high schools um, you know, sometimes students, so you're talking like thirty people would get together, they'd pull every copy of the book from the library and spend, you know, a month reading it, and then they get together and they'd vote on whether it's appropriate. And um, the new bill just uh, the new legislative law just uh, it, it it puts that responsibility on one person, the principal as uh, Senate Bill two two six. Um, so the principal and also has a, there's a shorter time frame, just like a, you know, a few weeks to, uh, decide and principals are busy people. They may not have time to completely read the books. However, I'm going to note that there's an out here for, for, uh, schools. And that is that it's the principal or, you know, his or her designee. And, um, we're waiting to see what the policies are going to be. They have until January, but, um, I suspect some districts will just keep doing the same thing. The principal designated to this committee's. The, the only difference is going to be the, the time frame, the shorter time frame. Uh, by the way, there's also one interesting little thing that no one's talked about in that bill, and that it, it says only parents in that school um, can file a complaint. Previously, anybody could. So this actually may limit um, mm-hmm. the number of complaints.
1: Um, it, it, Nicole, uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, book bans. Um, I was looking at some of the targeted books in Georgia and uh they seem to all have be of two two different themes basically race and gender issues so uh, the, uh, uh apparently among them is a book called gender queer uh another one called two boys kissing clearly books that that deal with um uh, uh gender homosexuality and um but then there's Toni Morrison's beloved uh which from my point of view is one of the most extraordinary novels of the 20th century. And it is a very, very tough book to read uh, because it deals with how a young woman with children uh, comes out of life in slavery and what, how traumatic her life is in, in, in the aftermath as she's trying to reorient herself. Um, it's also a very complicated book to read. You it has a very hard... You can't figure out what the timeline is for a while in the book. But in every way, it challenges us intellectually, I think, in important and and spectacular ways. Uh, And yet, uh, there are many, many parents who want it banned. What do you make of of a book like that, Pulitzer Prize-winning book, and efforts to ban it from schools? What are we losing if Beloved cannot be read by a senior in high school?
3: Yeah, I think you're losing uh, choice, right? And all of these arguments are about choice. And uh we have to think about what goes into that and uh, I'm sorry. I'm having a moment. Why
1: don't you take why don't you take a moment with your if your uh, uh, kiddo and Donna you pick up on that.
3: Now, uh,
0: beloved, everything you've said is absolutely right. Um, a great book. I, I will tell you, it take, it took me three times to get through it. And I had to keep going back through it. I'd leave a bookmark and go back through it. But and, and important things, it's one of those books that bring out things into you emotionally. And, um, and, and just it, it, it's something that we should all know about taking you back into what happens in history, and this one woman um, trying to figure it all out with losing her children during slavery and all of that, it saddens me that there are young people who won't be able to have access to reading those things. I can't imagine being told that I can't um, read certain books. And and we're not even just talking about Beloved, but, you know, uh, across the country, Grapes of Wrath? um you know the you know Anne Frank's story her her diary you know those kinds of books that you know that we all felt were so important to um understanding coming of age understanding who we are understanding our history um helping us frame who we who we become uh, and and they you know the American Library Association is doing its best to try to fight all of this. I'll I'll let you know that in in high school and college I actually I wanted to be a journalist, but I actually thought, okay, if I don't, I'll go into library science because I love books so much. And the fact that <laughs> we are talking about possi- you know um banning certain books really hurts it really hurts me and I hate that um, that I I'm I'm glad my children are old enough not to be, have, be going through this right now and not being able to have access to books they might want to read important books
1: Kevin
2: Kevin well I you know Bill I, I don't think it'll surprise anybody who's listening or who knows me that you know I've spent a, that my life working in a world where we depend upon freedom of speech so any, banning any sort of that it, it seems like anathema to me but I always have these two. Thoughts that I really picked up from wise people. One very pragmatic, one very sort of philosophical. The pragmatic one is nothing guarantees interest in a book more than trying to ban it. But let's just—I mean, if you're a high school kid and you're finding out that you're not supposed to read a book, it, it, it probably increases the chances that you'll read it, it in more ways than uh, any teacher could. And then, and then the other, of course, is that you know, just philosophically, I think people take on a book that has challenging content at a point where they are asking questions or are ready to wrestle with it. And I just remember that as, you know, as a high school kid reading The Catcher in the Rye and what it forced me to, you know, understand and ask about and and plow through a book that was hard for me at the time, you know. And I think that we just won't get anywhere we're doing this. If you examine our history, this is, just like a, this is just like a movie we have to watch over and over again. And I'm just optimistic that, you know, pe- cooler heads will prevail. And you really can't keep people from reading what they want to read.
1: All right, let's do this. Uh, we got to get to our first break of the show today, but we'll be back with more in just a moment. Welcome back to Political Rewind. We're talking today with Ty Tagami, the state education reporter for the AJC, Don Lowry, the host of GPB's Lawmakers, Nicole Carr, a reporter for ProPublica, and Kevin Riley, my partner on the Thursday shows, the editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ty, I actually, before we go back to some of the other themes of today's show, I, I thought it'd be worth pointing out the milestone tests uh, from 2022 here in Georgia and how we've seen uh, issues uh, uh, in terms of what the pandemic did to lowering our standards. So, for instance, and I'm just going to pick up a few of them here and there. Um, there is a chart that compares, and you all published it in the AJC, the percentage of, of students reading at grade level or above, and uh, this is uh, third grade, in the year of 2019. And then it compares that same th- uh, uh, issue percentage reading a grade lo- level or above in 2022. In places like Appling County, uh, the change is down 18.6% in a number of Atlanta public schools. It's down anywhere from 3.5% to 15% uh, to 24% in some uh, schools. Um, You can go on and look at uh, 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 places like Baldwin County, where they've lost in terms of the uh, comprehension in math as much as uh, eight points, Baker County, 13 points. It goes on and on. As I look at a chart, this chart, which shows every school in every county, uh, there is not one where they have gained uh, in their comprehension in math or reading. tie, that alone is troubling, and you've got to wonder how we address and fix that kind of problem.
4: Yeah, um, everybody's wondering that. We, we saw this coming, um, you know, from the beginning, really, but you know, there have been studies. Georgia State University has consistently done studies about performance using other kinds of tests and we definitely saw kids falling um falling behind they weren't uh, especially the younger kids is, was generally the trend the, the the ones they did worse online you know and um also with math a lot of parents can read to their kids at home um but math may be more challenging so there're definitely some deficits they have to overcome in, and, you know, the federal government has recognized that sending us like six billion dollars every state stake, uh, billions to spend on this kind of thing. Um, so it's supposed to mean more after school programs, more tutors, more, you know, more summer school. Um, but they only have uh, another couple of years to spend all that money. And there's a sh- shortage of staff, you know, to, to actually do that teaching. So we're going to have to wait and see this. The scores did improve from last year, um, but it was like. One step forward after two steps back, you know, it was a pretty big drop from 2019, but um, we're just going to have to wait and see how, whether these um, interventions actually do anything and the future test scores are going to tell us how we're doing. Donna? Donna?
0: Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. They, right now that the schools have been so worried about these culture wars that they haven't had a chance to focus on some of the things that we used to hear a lot about, you know, the, um, how they were going to um, look into helping these schools that are really suffering. Because it's the students who are... Uh, economically disadvantaged who are suffering the most, so we've seen the tumble in the scores, but black students hispanic students are uh, are seeing their scores drop more dramatically, although according to what we saw from the, the NAEP report that came out this morning that this this is um this is happening almost across the board and the the school districts that that were trying to focus on these issues a few years ago by bringing in people to just focus on issues are still on on the um academic issues are really spending a lot of time now focusing on everything that um that is coming out during an election year. And I'm hoping that this year, that we can we can get past the election and they can really start to focus on the things that matter the most and that parents should care mo- most about, and that's how well their kids are doing. Um, and not to even mention what we're seeing in some states where they are putting educators in the classrooms or people to teach, I should say, who don't even have the background in teaching.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, Nicole, uh, uh, this is the reason that I framed uh, our our show the way I did at the very beginning. It talked about falling testing scores. Ty says there's been a little improvement uh, over 2021. Nevertheless, there's still a deficit. Um, The the, the issues that that teachers are facing in classrooms. How do we get our kids back on track learning? And we have yet uh, 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 leaders in the legislature who are focused on these hot button issues. It'll be interesting, as Donna suggests, to see um, what happens once the election is over. Ty points out there's all this federal money with limited time to use it. How are we going to see once we get an election out of the way, once we get all these campaign issues like critical race theory off the uh, plates for a while, how is the state going to address these problems? Hmm. Are you there? Do we ha- Did we get you back? I don't think, I yes, think we have. Yes, you have
3: me here. I, I okay. think we have to ask, uh, do we get over those issues at all, right? Uh, everything that has been hyped up in terms of critical race theory happened over a couple of years now. We're at the point where this has been a hot button issue for several years. It's a political talking point. It's had real consequences in people's lives in the way that they feel um, safe in going into the schoolhouse and doing what they need to do, whether individual teachers feel targeted. What happens from state to state with teacher shortages? Do other places look more appealing to teachers uh, based on the politics of the state (laughs) versus others? We see billboards in North Carolina right now telling those teachers, hey, come on over into Virginia for this. And that, are we having the same recruitment issues we've seen in police departments? I don't know that the politics go away, you know. And so we really have to think about long-term consequences of something that's been building up over – it didn't just pop out of nowhere this year with these laws. This has been brewing for years.
2: Kevin? Kevin? Bill, I think the hardest part about education and, you know, I've talked to superintendents about this and I sort of mentioned it at the open that, you know, it's, it's like it's the nexus of our society. It's where everything comes together. Right. And then even more important, perhaps, is every parent among us has also been in school and been to school. So we, of course, consider ourselves experts on, on what ought to be taught, how school ought to work, even though we may not be experts in education. We may be somewhat experts in our children and how they respond and and what they respond to. So I do think the divisiveness of our politics makes this very, very dangerous because we don't want to see an education. People retreat or go only to their, let's just call it their tribe, and people experience an education that is just the point of view That they would prefer because, of course, what education is about is different points of view, challenging your point of view, meeting people who think about and see things differently and then discovering in yourself what may be there that goes untapped otherwise. And I do think this is just as a big issue for our society, a very hard one, because education ought to bring us together, not drive us apart.
1: Um, Ty Takami, let's put this in the campaign context for a few minutes. Um, Let's start with the school superintendent's race right here in Georgia, where you've got Richard Woods uh, facing a challenge from Alicia Thomas Searcy. How are they addressing issues in the schools Uh, separate from these hot button issues? How are they playing into those issues? Just give us a little about uh, that race and how it's shaping up between the two of them?
4: Uh, well, you know, aside from the divisive concepts um, issue where they, you know, they disagree, um, which says that the policies they have are going to be a good guide for teachers. And Alicia seriously says, um, you know, that it's just divisive. Um, aside from that, I, it's hard to find differences on policy between the two. They seem to agree on a lot of the policies. It's, it's really for them comes down to uh, execution, who would be better at implementing policies and really the, the state of the state. So uh, at a recent forum, Alicia Searcy was describing a calamitous situation, you know, as the just uh, a, sort of like what the Nate scores are describing. And um, Woods is saying, no, well, you know, the fact that Governor Kemp um, and, and I helped keep schools open, most schools in Georgia were, were open for, for much of the pandemic, um, in person. Uh, it, because of that, you know, we did fairly well. Those are his words. So um, it, it, I think it's really going to come down to personality. And uh, this is a, usually at the bottom of the um, ticket. So a lot of people don't spend time studying it or hear much about it. So, so it's going to be interesting to see how, um, whether they can get their messages out, whether it has an impact.
1: Um, all right, let, let's do this. Let's look at another uh, race, uh, Nicole, uh, the U.S. Senate race, Raphael Warnock versus Herschel Walker. Uh, South Carolina Senator Tim Scott has uh, made several commercials uh, uh, endorsing uh, Walker. Uh, let's listen to the audio from just one of them. It's pertinent to our conversation today. This is Senator Tim Scott asking you to send reinforcements to Washington. With crippling inflation, record gas prices, and parents not having a say in their kids' education, achieving the American dream seems out of grasp for millions. But I believe America is the solution, not the problem. We can do better, but that requires new leadership. That's why I'm asking you to support Herschel Walker. Herschel will restore the American dream and will stand with me to always fight for you.
2: Opportunity Matters Fund is responsible for the content.
1: Uh, he uh, what Tim Scott has been doing is targeting classroom culture wars as a big issue in uh, the Walker campaign. And he claims that parents have, quote, no control. Uh, talk about that a little, Nicole.
3: Yeah, again, we're getting into this political um, talking point that has no basis, no factual basis. Uh, parents do have a process to be involved in their classrooms. And honestly as we're seeing what is so called grassroots efforts um, against CRT DEI SEL and we write about this in our last piece um, these parents are being trained through these talking points political talking points and bringing them into the districts in a lot of a lot of ways i mean so this is a heavy uh, a political deal that just it's not backed by fact if you're a parent if you have a kid in the public school system you have a say, you have access. You have access to what they're learning and what they're doing. So um, again, I think this just really makes it tough for teachers to know where is the line? What am I doing? What can I come in here and do and uh, without being scrutinized at an unreasonable level? Let's talk about what's reasonable here.
1: So. I'm sorry, Nicole, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Uh, Donna, before I have to get to a break, let's point out that these themes are playing out in lots of other races as well. When Governor Kemp signed the uh, divisive concepts legislation. Uh, he said that uh, teaching uh, subjects that would make some students feel uncomfortable uh, and as if they were responsible for racism, whatever uh, was un-American, um, and and so it, it's these are themes that are playing out in races from legislature up and down the state constitutional offices.
0: No, absolutely. You know, um, Governor Kemp talked about the um, the law, the what was going on with his his. He came out about critical race theory, writing a letter to the state board of education after things happened in Cherokee County, like after the big uproar in Cherokee County about uh, critical race theory. And when he came out with that letter that he sent to the state board of education as saying he did not want, you know, to, to see any of these concepts taught for a lot of people who weren't paying attention to what was going on in Cherokee County, this was the first time they'd really even heard about critical race theory on, on a statewide basis. And then the school board, the state school board, then came out and said, you know, okay, we're going to go along with this. So, um, you know, when, when we were going through all of this at the Capitol and, they, and the uh, legislature was looking at the bill, billing with all of this, um, one of the senators involved, Senator Bo Hatchett, um, carried the bill in the Senate, and I remember having a one on one conversation with him, <clears throat> excuse me, and asking him about this whole thing and and then saying, you know is this is this a real problem, you know, out there, or are we just you know um coming up with a solution And his thing was it, he it, the bill won't prevent will prevent a problem from developing. Uh, as opposed to dealing with an existing problem, and that and that's what we're we're seeing happen here. I did want to mention Tim Scott. Not a surprise that he is supporting Herschel Walker. Tim Scott is the only Black Republican in the U.S. Senate, and um, I, I, and there's speculation, of course, that he will run for um, president, and so it makes sense that he would be involved in that particular race and want to have Herschel Walker part of
1: that. uh, I gotta get to a break. Uh, We're running late for that. When When we come back, we got a lot more to talk about on Political Rewind.
5: At a time when
1: information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories
2: filling your feed. Find NPR's Line wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Nicole Carr, um, I want to ask you to give us just a little bit about a story you wrote about a situation that developed in Cherokee and then in Cobb County Over the hiring in Cherokee of a woman named Cecilia Lewis, who is, I think, an assistant principal, an administrator in the school system in Maryland, Cherokee County wanted to start a position uh, dealing with diversity and understanding the differences among students, how we could work together, and they thought Cecilia Lewis was the best choice for that job. She moved down here with her family, and a war erupted around her hiring. Talk about it.
3: Yeah, that that war erupted uh, around the same week that Donna just referenced before the break, the first time that we were hearing about uh, the critical race theory in the state. But Cecilia Lewis was a principal in Maryland, hired for this DEI position that she did not apply for. (laughs) Um, The district was forming this out of conversations with uh, stakeholders of color in the district as Cherokee uh, becomes a more diverse community. They were identifying issues of uh, diversity, equity, uh, that included a lot of things. We're not just talking about race here. And uh, we saw some of these national groups led uh, by huge conservative groups that came into the community to train them on uh, what was happening in the classroom and the so-called demonization of white children. And this was discussed with parents in a clubhouse on a Sunday afternoon in Cherokee County. They galvanized. They had form letters to protest her hiring. We saw an ugly school board meeting. We saw people beating on windows, yelling out against DEI Cherokee. And they wanted Lewis to continue or to start her job there despite everything that had happened and the threats that she'd endured for weeks out of state. I mean this was an organized effort. Uh, needless to say, she opted out of the job and headed to Cobb to be over the social studies program there. And that movement followed her and made it unbearable to work here. And those are the cliff notes. Um, and you know Donna also said something about uh the lawmaker who said, you know, we're we're writing this legislation to prevent something from happening. Uh, in the case of Cecilia Lewis's hiring, Representative Brad Thomas got to a, a podium and said, we're pulling language from Texas, from Oklahoma's bill. This was very organized and very political. And then this woman becomes the center of something that she doesn't even, she can't define.
1: Ty, one of the sad things about Cecilia Lewis's case is, the, the people in Cherokee County who were protesting her essentially knew nothing about her at all. They hadn't met her. They didn't know anything about what her plans were for DEI training in in the county. And then the fact that after she went for a job in Cobb County, people in Cherokee alerted the board in Cobb that she was trouble somehow, made her case. I, I don't think tragic is really an exaggerated word to use, I,
4: yeah, the whole thing is just was just um, when it first happened, we're talking over a year ago last uh, in spring, that meeting in Cherokee County, i would never been to a school board meeting um, as, as ugly as that one. Uh, it was really baffling at the time. I remember calling superintendents who, you know, they were Googling cultural race theory. Um, <laughs> they didn't know what it meant. Matter of fact, I think in your story, Nicole, even even Cecilia, she called it, she thought it was culturally relevant teaching. BRT. Um, okay, what but anyway, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, what was interesting about that uh, Cherokee movement is it was organized by anti-obscenity activists, um, so that they were engaging in race it was really confusing at the time. There was a uh, meeting at a golf uh, clubhouse about a month before the meeting where they were coaching parents on how to um, do, uh, make, uh, give speeches that were like TV ready, made for Fox TV um and then we had that explosive meeting um but but that issue has sort of shifted back to to gender issues transgender sex you know um uh sexuality and you know i've talked to some of these moms about what what they really want and what they're concerned about and they talk about uh radical indoctrination they they feel like that's what's happening in the schools they you know rewiring kids brains on biological norms of sex and gender or about uh, to, to, to see uh, difference in race that's what they think is happening that's what they think dei is which is diversity equity and inclusion and they talk about um the bible uh,
1: and kevin that's one of the things i want to get to as we run out of time here school board meetings uh are becoming more and more battlegrounds um we have these mothers uh two mothers mama bearers in cherokee county who uh, have come to school board meetings to try to get books banned, and they've stood up and read out loud excerpts from the books, and they've been told these are not things to read out loud. They've now filed a federal lawsuit saying their First Amendment rights have been violated. But uh, people like Tai Tagami um, are going to end up, I think, at times covering school board meetings moving forward that truly are going to be war zones.
2: Yeah, somehow this Um, incredibly divisive uh, politics and efforts to make uh, as Nicole's story references. Um, And we should give Nicole a chance to tell the audience where they can find that unbelievable piece of journalism she produced. But it's like trying to get on Tucker Carlson there at the Cherokee County school board meeting. It's kind of a strange world right now.
1: Yeah. um, Nicole, we have already tweeted out a link your piece about that on ProPublica. And I know you'll be following school board meetings that may get uh, pretty contentious moving forward as well. Uh, We're out of time, I am sorry to say, for today's Political Rewind, but I really appreciate uh, the conversation. Nicole Carr, thank you so much for uh, being with us. Donna Lowry, you know it's always a pleasure to have you a part of Political Rewind. Thank you for being here. My friend Kevin Riley. thanks I'll talk to you soon. And Tai Tagami, come back more when we talk about education. Uh, I'd I'd love to have you back on the show, okay? That's it. We're completely out of time for our show today. Uh, Until tomorrow, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care and stay healthy. Bye, everybody.